Exciting episode of No Driving Gloves, where Derek, John, and Will will use over 75 years combined industry knowledge to bring you a bare-knuckled view on the collector car hobby. So let's get rolling. Hello, everyone out there. It's uh, Derek and John tonight. Unfortunately, that self-employment that Will has that is so cushy and lets him do whatever he wants has him working late for the next few nights. So it'll just be Derek and I this evening. How was your week, Derek? Uh, no, my week week went good. Everything's going well. At this point, just most of my time is spent getting ready for all the holiday travel and holiday events that are going to be going on over the next two, three weeks of life. Always the, at least for us, I don't know about you guys, John, but this is, tends to be our slower season rolling through December into January at work and wrapping up the year and getting ready for the next year so things at work are slowing down a bit and just kind of moving into the holidays for me it stays kind of consistent january starts getting busy for me but our guest average is about the same through december especially over the holidays a lot of people come into town and uh, their families drag them over to see us our event staff has been wonderful lately and uh, has been booking the heck out of the place so christmas party after christmas party after christmas party it's a little bit busier, I think, on our side, but fortunately, that's not in my job description, so I don't have to worry about that. And I've got a quick, easy travel this this upcoming holiday. I'm not sure what our, to, to let all the listeners know, and this is the part you care about, we're not sure what our rele- release schedule will be over the Christmas season. We'll probably go ahead and take the last two weeks of December off. That's what we're leaning to. If we can get some interview podcasts in or something that we can record in advance and go ahead and release, we might go ahead and try to go on interrupted. But there's a really good chance you won't hear from us the last two weeks of December. So without Will tonight, Derek and I are going to try to talk about some a topic that is a little bit different than Will's alley. And he probably shouldn't be in the room because we're going to discuss how these uh, hot rodders just go ahead and take these wonderful cars Derek and I want to preserve, cut them into little bits and do whatever they want with them. Kind of destroy history there. Just think of how many nice stock Model A's we would have and 32 Fords if it wasn't for people like Will. What's your feeling on that, Derek? And 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 all those Model T's too. Don't forget those. Ooh. Yeah, there's not enough of those anymore. Not that's, at all. That's sarcasm. Yeah. That's, that's a little sarcasm. Sorry. No, we're actually going to talk. I, no, no, no. When, when I get tours and stuff, when I give tours and when I'm talking to people and discuss, discussing kind of what I do or what I did, and I'm sure Derek gets the same questions, and that's how do you guys decide or how do you guys make the choices you do when doing a restoration? And goes from... How do you make it stock? Do you put it back the way it left the factory? Do you put it to a significant point in history? Do you preserve what you have? Do you go, well, this doesn't really exist. Let's just go ahead and, you know, throw it away or scrap it or part it out. Does it is it better served, as we said in early in an early episode, sacrificing its life for the betterment of others? It's just a long, hard question with multiple answers, and we're going to try to 
take it on a, a little bit tonight. Help you know from the for-profit restoration shop point of view, uh, from the conservation point of view, from the museum point of view, some of what goes in. Everybody's got a little bit of difference of opinion. I differ sometimes from my employers or my customers, and I'm sure Derek does. Everyone has their opinion, right or wrong, but these are the procedures and thought processes that Derek and I use and try to convince, at least I try to convince my bosses. I think Derek's got a little bit easier because he's a little bit higher on that totem pole in the museum world than I. So you get a uh, car in, and we'll go ahead and say something something arrives, and you're you're going to speak from the experience of three or four or five different museums. What do you do with it if, say... I, I couldn't even give you an example. Say, a car a car arrives. What's your initial impression? A lot of times with donations and that, you don't get to make the decision. Where do we go? Okay. Well, I'll just start firing off examples of ve- collection vehicles that I've worked on that I've dealt with at various museums and the many different choices that can be made in that process. And this is, it, you know, it's, it's an interesting world to live in. And I'm sure, John, you've experienced this. Everybody has an opinion on what should happen, especially in the automotive museum world, it seems, to the vehicles in museum collection. Making that decision can oftentimes be somewhat difficult. Uh, you're never going to please everyone on the way you decide to do things. Yeah, my first example will be probably one of the most recent acquisitions at the uh, Corvette Museum, and and it's a, been fairly fairly well publicized that this car was donated to the museum, but it is a C5 Corvette uh, 2000 with 773,338 miles on it. Uh, it's been all, all over the internet that it was donated, and it is. The big, the significant thing about the car is it's running on its original engine. It's had head gaskets replaced uh, about 50,000 miles ago. Uh, Yes, it's on its second transmission, but engine-wise, it's it's pretty much the original engine. And it's got a significant story behind it. It's probably the highest mileage original Corvette in existence. And we've already had a lot of attention given to the car by supporters uh you know just corvette people out there and a lot of people want to know well what are you guys going to do with it and to be honest the answer is pretty much absolutely nothing Uh, we're going to preserve it in the state it's in you know the seats are worn and torn the there's a lot of wear and tear obviously this the steering wheel has wear on it all the things you would see in a high mileage car you can imagine they're on this Corvette and that's how it looks. Uh, The clear coat has started to blister and peel in a few places within the last year, year and a half. uh, The donor informed us of, and and when it arrived, we saw that in the museum world, often the, the story that goes along with the artifact is more important than just having a pretty artifact and a perfectly restored car. It's, it's about the story that goes with that vehicle, that artifact, that object, whatever term you want to give it. And so in the case of a car like that, 
we're really not going to touch it. We're going to do what we need to do to preserve it in the condition it's in. And our goal with a vehicle like that is basically we want for the next 100, 200, 300, 400, 500 years, the goal of any museum is that in 100 years, that car looks exactly the way it looked the day it rolled into the museum doors. And there's a lot of techniques we use in the preservation world, in the, you know, conservation industry business to make sure that car stays looking the way it is. Um, and I think Jim and I have talked about a little bit, you know, a lot of uh, paying attention to chemicals that we use, paying attention to chemistry of how they react, uh, you know, trying to make sure certain things are pH balanced when they're used in the car, uh, all those different things that we do. So that's kind of one example of a car with a a car with an extremely significant story that we want to preserve exactly the way it came to us because it is the best way to tell that car's story. So with that car, that's the way I would go. And I'll, I'll kind of reflect with a similar thing, but to touch on your Corvette, it's it's unique with the 700 and change thousand miles on it because especially in the Corvette world, People will buy these cars and pamper them and treat them like babies. And there are lots of very low mileage 2000 C5 Corvettes out there, you know, with just a couple thousand miles on. They were driven on Sundays, you know, just to the grocery store, just to lunch or and well cared for. But that exudes what a Corvette was built to built to be is driving and being used and proving that they aren't necessarily a fragile sports car. Three quarters of a million miles on anything is something to be commended. I mean, Volvo does commercials on their million and two million mile cars, but it's a little bit a little bit different. But it's nice because I think the value both monetarily and historically in that Corvette is the mileage. Because if you're to take that and totally restore it to brand new, you've destroyed the three-quarter million mile story. And you've got a car that's restored that isn't... Anything that's restored is never as nice as an original car. When I used to do appraisals, I loved nothing more than to get in, really, ironically, an original Corvette get in a 65 Corvette that had never been disassembled by a restore or you know, a 73 Corvette that had never been disassembled. They shift better. Everything works. Night, you know, it's, it's factory. It, I'm not, you know, these are well cared for cars. Again, the low mileage examples, but no restore can ever put together a car as well as the factory did. It's a belief I have. We can try, but when you're, ha you know, say the transmission, when you're assembling 10,000 of these transmissions as a subcontractor, everything goes together perfectly. You have the proper tooling and such. The guy doing it on his bench, even a dedicated Corvette restorer, that all he does is Corvettes, still won't get it that perfect and. I think, you know, that's that's one reason we make those decisions to leave those three-quarter million cars the way they are. We acquired a car 
couple of years back. I've alluded to it on a couple of episodes. It was a 1962 Lotus 27. It's a small Formula Junior car. It, or maybe it was a Formula Ford. But the car was raced in 1962. At the end of the season, put up. Put in a guy's garage, and it sat in that... Well, actually, it was a guy's basement. And it sat in that basement for 30 years till it was sold to the next owner, who took it and put it in his basement. And then we bought it. So here we have this race car with only one year of use on it, but what do you do to it? I mean, it was raced. It's got some chips in the fiberglass and some cracks and some tape on it holding it together, and it's how it lived its life, and our decision also was to preserve it. We could have made it. It would have been an easy restoration to make perfect again. We did disassemble the motor, and a mistake happened in that, and the motor ended up getting repainted. Uh, because part of our, our collection, everything must run and operate. Uh, we have a living collection, as we call it. So we needed to make the motor function. It you know, obviously had not run in almost 50 years. So we ma- made that, that happen. But we did extensive preservation. Anything that I disassembled, I tagged each bolt, and each bolt went back into the same hole. And if at all possible, the head position in the same place. We had to change out some of the rubber pieces because, again, we're, you know, brake break hoses and such. The tires on it are still the original 1962 tires. They hold air. We don't really plan on driving the car, but it can run. So there's, you do this because, again, every other Lotus out there of that age has been through some sort of work and some sort of restoration and normally modifications to continue vintage racing them. The nice thing about my facility, and Derek and I have talked about it, he might be the only other facility, we each have access to our own racetracks. So we don't even have to go back and put in fire suppression systems, roll cages, modern seat belts. We can operate our cars the way they were in the day. And we're not going to go out and run them at nine tenths and ten tenths, but if we're doing parade laps and exhibition stuff, we don't have to have that. Where a lot of times, if we were to take that to another track or another event, just because of the fact it is a race car, and they don't know how we're going to act and how responsible we are, they want to enforce having the roll cage or a fire suppression system or modern seat belts in it and such out of, out of safety sake. So it's a real nice thing that I think both Derek and I have access to that if you want to exercise some of the older race cars, you don't have to bring them to a modern standard. That car is something you can come in and walk up to, and it is 1962. It's the way that car finished the season in 1962. I'll go with another one. I got a... I'm trying to think of which car I want to go with on this story. A 1963 Lotus uh, Super 7. Car was raced its entire life. We found the car nearby uh, uh, through a channel. We found this car, and it was the 1977 SCCA D-Mod Champion car wanted in uh, 1977, Tom Robertson rode Atlanta against factory triumphs. There's no way this 
15-year-old car at the time should have won this race. But certain little things happen, and it's great to talk to Tom. He, I think I'm visiting with Tom. He, he's swinging by in a week or so, and we're gonna, hoping to get more stories out of him. But to have him narrate what happened at the race and things, we located photos of the car. When we bought the car, it filled, it's a Lotus 7, which is a really, really small car. Google it. I mean, there's hardly anything to do it. It filled a 28-foot gooseneck trailer when we picked it up because everything was disassembled. The significant point in this car's life was the day it won that national championship. Our decisions were we could restore it and have a 1963 Lotus Super 7, which we still don't have a Series 2 Lotus 7 in our collection uh, that's all original. Uh, We could make the car run and drive and put it back together without any regards to any history, or we could build it back to that day in 1977 and was able to contact people and Uh, get photographs of the car, talk to people that were at the race, and we restored that car to the way it appeared in 1977. We kind of say pre-race championship because it it was slightly damaged and we didn't replicate the fender damage from when it got hit during the race and things like that. We kind of say it's exactly how it would have been as he started the race in 1977 to the best of our ability reproducing the decals on it, doing the proper Ford Grabber Blue off of a Maverick that the car was painted that year. And then that blue was an interesting story because all the photographs I had showed the car orange. And even in the Road Atlanta program in 1978 showed the car as an orange car. And a graphic designer friend of mine who's also a Lotus 7 expert, he was looking at the pictures one day at dinner and he said, well, they forgot to put cyan in when they developed those photos, and he went ahead and color corrected, and boom, all the colors and all the stories made sense again. I love to use that example that Derek and I can't believe photographs. Sometimes the picture's wrong, and it's unbelievable, but sometimes the picture is wrong. Got another story with correcting black and white photographs, but the car ran Firestone decals on the fenders. It ran Firestone tires all year, but it wasn't a sponsored co- sponsorship. He just put Firestone decals on, according to Tom. And at the r- Nationals, he ran Goodyear's because a buddy of him had a deal with Goodyear, and the Goodyear tires were a little bit better. So he won that championship in a Blue Lotus Super 7 with Firestone decals on it on Goodyear tires. So, of course, we have the car displayed with Goodyear tires. It's just little things like that that tell you that story, and that story would be lost to history if we went ahead and made this car, quote, the way it left the factory. Yeah, and I think that's that's a big part of what you and I do, John, and, and Will, you know, as you say, with the restorations he does, this doesn't really fall into what he's doing, but blending the idea of conservation and restoration i think happens more than some people might think in the museum world not just in automotive but they do it in the art world they do it in you know natural history all all the different museum worlds that are out there and i'll go back to my time at henry ford museum and seeing we're on lotus Uh, we'll just keep going with lotus 
and my last project at Henry Ford Museum before I actually left for the Crawford in Cleveland was basically managing the project that brought the 1965 Type 38 Lotus that Jim Clark drove and won the 1965 Indy 500 in back to operational condition so that it could be driven at all of the 100th anniversary events and also uh, ran over at the Goodwood Festival of Speed, the, the hill climb at, at the Goodwood Estate. And when we first really dove into that car and looking at it and doing the research on it, knowing we had to make the decision of what to do with it, you know, a big part of it before we even touched the car was researching the car's history and trying to figure out what exactly happened to the car through its entire life. And so I spent a lot of time digging through files, uh, talking to people who knew the car over different periods of its life. And we basically knew the car was built. They did testing over in England at uh, Snetterton at the track there in England, and then came over, uh, tested it once one more time on a, at a track on the East Coast. I don't remember which track at this point. And then brought it to Indy and did final shakedown at Indy and then ran the race. And basically in all of those cases, Jim Clark was the only person to drive that car in shakedown testing and then at the Indy 500. And the agreement that Ford Motor Company had with Lotus, because of course the car was running the famous 4Cam Ford engine, was that if the car won the race, it became the property of Ford Motor Company. We knew from files that and, and photographs that the car essentially, when it won the race, all that happened, it became the property of Ford Motor Company. They brought it back to Dearborn, Michigan, and we didn't really know what happened to it. The interesting thing was there were some magazine articles, supposedly this Lotus Ford torn apart, so you could see all the components of an Indy winning Ford Lotus Ford race car. And it had the number 82 on it, which was Jim Clark's number during the race. And we thought, oh, okay, so the car has been all apart and put all back together. But it took about probably about a day. And I, I finally noticed that there was something that didn't seem quite right. And I noticed the paint scheme wasn't the paint scheme that exactly matched the way Jim Clark's car looked. And then I noticed the interior didn't quite match. And it turns out what they did is they actually took one of the, what we believe was one of the backup cars and repainted the number 82 on the roundels. So it had the 82 on it, but it wasn't actually the Jim Clark car. The Jim Clark car never got torn apart. And so when we went and actually dug into the car and started looking at it, well, it was the race-winning engine still sitting in the car, never removed. We knew the car had been repainted twice by Ford Motor Company to freshen it up and make it look better. The interior, the cockpit of the, you know, the area, the, the inside of the monocoque was all in its original finishes. Then, so then we started really making some different decisions from what we thought originally. And the car was carefully disassembled at Classic Team Lotus. The engine was shipped 
uh, to a shop uh, near the Speedway up in Indianapolis. And we basically became, began a thorough, really, preservation of the engine and the in- internal components of the chassis itself. But seeing we knew the paint on the outside had been restored at least twice, that obviously had to be repainted because it just it didn't exactly match the way the car looked at the race in 1965. And so I spent, you know, as John, as you talk about, you spend days looking at photographs, black and white photographs from the race, color photographs from the race, the car before the race, the car after the race, everything you can, you're you're taking measurements of decals, trying to account for the parallax of the angle of the shot, uh, everything that goes into that. You know, finally tracking down through people like the gentleman who rebuilt the engine, a guy named Walt Goodwin up in Indianapolis, who's been around Indy racing since he was a kid in the like, I think he was in the 19, like late 50s, early 60s and, and in it all the way up. Having him come up and and just you know, talk to him about decals and have it turn out that he's got original decals stored away in his shop. And he was kind enough to donate those to the project and all the things that start falling together and the questions and the people you get to meet is, is one of the great parts of it. Like John, like you say, and get to hear the stories and start tracking down parts and pieces And then we finally got to the point where we had everything determined on exact measurements of the paint job, where the roundels went, uh, the shape of the roundels, the exact shape of the numbers, the size of all the decals and placement of the decals according to the rivet, you know, rivet count on the rivet lines. Well, then it came down to, we're going to repaint the car. Are we using base coat, clear coat? Are we using an enamel? What? what are we using urethane you know acrylic and what what are we going to use in the conservation world we have a term that we use called inherent vice and inherent vice is anything that the original material or product any problem it would have had from factory from its you know origins so In 1965, that Type 38 Lotus was painted in nitrocellulose lacquer. And nitrocellulose lacquer, of course, over time, off-gasses and does what most guys call, you know, the spider webbing, the the cracking that you get in nitrocellulose lacquer paint jobs. And we knew that if we wanted the car to look right, it had to be painted in nitrocellulose lacquer. And we had the, the good fortune that Lotus Works is still right across the road from Classic Team Lotus. And the guys over at Lotus Works knew the project was going on. They came over and looked at it periodically to see how things were going. And their paint guys were kind enough to say, you know what, we can we can mix the right color in nitrocellulose lacquer and paint that car in nitrocellulose lacquer again. We did that. And, and we got a lot of questions about that. And John, I'm sure you've probably had this happen at the Barber and in other projects you've worked on in your life, because a lot of guys out there are like, well, why in the world would you do that? That's just ridiculous. 
It's going to shrink. It's going to crack. It's going to do all these things. It's going to look terrible in 20 years, 30 years. It's, it's going to look horrible. You know, you should have painted it with an enamel or a you know base coat, clear coat. It would have looked beautiful. Well, that's the problem. We didn't want it to look beautiful. And that's that's the goal in museums, as John was just talking a little bit about. You want to capture the look of that object or that artifact at a certain moment in time. And for us, it was what that car looked like running the race in 1965. And to put anything on it that looked any different than nitrocellulose, nitrocellulose lacquer would not have been doing that. And it also allows that car to live out the inherent vice that it originally would have had. So, yeah, maybe in 30 years, we're gonna, they're going to start to see some shrinking of the paint and some cracking. But had that car never been touched 30 years after the race, it's what it would have done. So we're trying to capture that. And that's, you know, when John talks about color correcting a photograph and, and figuring out that it was that, you know, repainted the grabber blue color and, and those things and you capture those details, that's really what we're trying to do in the museum world, in the conservation world. We're not worried about painting a car so it looks like a brand new Toyota Corolla. <laughs> or well, let's expand uh, a, a little, little unless it is a brand new Corvette. Let's expand a little on, on the paint conversation because that's always a point of, of contention. Is yes, you you've done it in the nitrocellulose lacquer, and it's it inherently is going to age and do all of that. But what we found, and I'm sure you found, is these that car will never be exposed and treated the way it has been in the past as technologies evolved, as the facilities it's stored in. You know, that car will always be in a climate-controlled indoor building with the occasional exposure to sunlight, with the occasional occasional use and weathering. Within 10 or 15 years, you're going to start getting that cracking and checking if you put it on your even just your show car that you cruise out on Saturday night, go to the you know coffee shop or donuts, in a museum setting, you're probably going to get 10 or 15 more years out of that paint job than you normally would. And what it also does, you have to remember museums are there to educate people and to teach you about the past, good or bad. They're supposed to teach you about the past. And in 15 years, maybe that paint does crack. Maybe that paint does check, and somebody's going to ask why. And the person who's in charge of caring for the car at that point in time is going to educate somebody about nitrocellulose lacquer. If the car wasn't done that way, that paint process may eventually be forgotten. We discuss a lot of paint processes that can't be done anymore because of health code and EPA, and it's, it's unfortunate we can't do those. But that that still at least allows us to talk about history and the way things were done. And there's certain looks that will never be replicated, as Derek said, especially, you know, even that Jimmy Clark car. This is the way it looked, the, just the sheen or the, the gloss or those little things make a difference. It, you know, it really bothers me that, you know, a lot of stuff gets painted in that base clear that never was just because it's durable. You know, it's easy. 
it just it's just not something if if you can do it right do it you know and if it's if it if it's worth doing it's worth doing right it's that old um saying i guess and i just wanted yeah to... and that's i'm gonna i'll no yeah i i agree completely and i'll i'll flip that a little bit too it's not just the paint finishes i'm very particular at Henry Ford Museum, at when I was at the Crawford, obviously I was dealing with a lot of horseless carriage, a lot of brass era, uh, very early cars. Uh, I don't do that so much anymore other than in my personal life. But even with the Corvettes, I'm very adamant that the way we operate those cars as a museum is the way they were originally. And with horseless carriage and brass era cars, that means... We don't have starters on them. It's pre-starter. We're hand cranking them. You know, it's, we're not using fuel pumps. We're either using gravity fed fuel or we're using a vacuum system, which is a long story to explain, but you're basically using vacuum for the engine to suck gas from the tank into the reserve tank and then into the, the carburetor. But I was always very adamant about that. And some of the issues was that with that is early cars when they're running on the technology they had back then a lot of times they stalled a lot of times they died for no good reason and you'd have to get out and start them again and figure out what happened or maybe not figure out what happened and just say hey it's running again we're gonna go and it's like john says you know that happens at an event at a show something I've had I've had a couple cars I've had out and they've stalled on me for no reason. They were driving fine and they just decided to stop running. And people ask questions. Well, why why did it stop running? Like what? And it gives you the opportunity to explain. Well, this is exactly what people had to deal with in the early days of the auto industry. It's they were they were complicated machines that didn't always run right. And you had to understand them and understand how to get them running again and figure it out. It was all part of the experience, including hand cranking. And I I will admit to this, and I'll tell this story. And John, I think you know this. I I think I had filled you in on this. But a few years ago at the Crawford, we were getting a car running, uh, a 1909 Studebaker Garford. I'm sorry, 1907 Studebaker Garford. And it had not run in probably 20 plus years having a hard time getting it start primed and started just because it would just sat so long and you're trying to get fuel into it and get it going you know everything you got to do to get one of those going and it was a fairly big engine car 30 horse car which is a fairly large four-cylinder engine at the time a lot of compression and i had gotten it running a few times driven a little bit working the bugs out went to start it once one time and pulled up on the crank and don't really know what happened believe the mag fired too soon and the engine started backwards on me pulled me face first into the radiator knocked me unconscious knocked out half of my front two teeth and split my lips open and i wound up at the emergency room that is exactly why the electric self-starter was invented because people were getting injured seriously and some people died hand cranking early automobiles 
But those of us that work on early automobiles and, and hand crank them, we all pretty much know and we all pretty much say that any of us are one crank away from getting hurt because you never know what that early car is going to do. And that's why a lot of people do put, you know, rig up a self-starter of some kind onto their cars because they don't necessarily want to take that risk. But from the world I live in and the educational world I live in, the museum world, I prefer that we hand crank those cars. And I'll tell you what, I don't plan on that ever happening to me again (laughs) because it was a, a fluke. There was something that just went wrong. But as long as you have those cars set right, and I've had hand cranks pulled out of my hand before when they fired too early. It just, this this one time, for some reason, I couldn't let go fast enough. And that's one of so, the stories you always hear with hand cranking is anytime I've ever been exposed or been around hand crank cars, somebody's got to make the comment and discuss breaking your arm, breaking your elbow, throwing out your shoulder. And that just seems to be that conversation. That's what they were known for, and that's why, like you said, the electric starter came to be. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, going back to kind of our conversation about how you make decisions on these things, I think a lot of what we just talked about, you know, museums approach it from that educational aspect as well that we just talked about. And, you know, at, at Henry Ford Museum, another fantastic car that's there actually two fantastic cars there that are there that i can give examples of something else we we will do sometimes the original quadricycle the 1896 quadricycle that henry ford built and the very first race car he ever built the 1901 ford sweepstakes those are both at henry ford museum Uh, both those cars are fairly original cars they're the only ones ever built they're one of a kind. And although they're kept and preserved at a point of basically just short of running, in other words, the engines turn over, everything functions the way it's supposed to, they just don't put fuel in them and and fire them up. But Henry Ford Museum also knows it's very important that people get to see those type of cars operating, those two cars specifically operating, hear their stories and also hear and smell and see them move. So what museums will do occasionally, and there's a, a few museums have done this with some very significant cars, and, and it's great that they have, but Henry Ford Museum actually has exact replicas of that have been built to be operable. And they're nearly, they're basically identical to the original. It's the 1901 Ford sweepstakes, which was built for the 100th anniversary in 2001 of Ford Racing. It was so identical to the original that it had all of the exact same problems that were documented with the first one. It burnt the same bearing. It cracked the same cylinder. It did all the things the original one did. That is how exact the car was replicated. I think it was within um, like five or ten pounds of the original in weight. They got it so exact. And 
you know, so when you're dealing with an artifact that is so precious and so historically value, uh, valuable, there are often times that museums decide to build exact replicas. Probably one of the coolest ones, aside from those two cars, uh, I've gotten to drive both of those replicas and they're amazing. But there is a museum in Florida and they have recreated the 1770 Fardier de Cugnot, which is the first self-propelled vehicle ever built, uh, built in France as a military experiment, steam-powered, massive wooden contraption. And the original exists in the, I believe it's the Muse des Art in Paris, France. And the Cerf family who operates the museum decided that they wanted their, their French uh, descent and decided that they wanted to be able to show the first self-propelled vehicle in operable condition. And they went over, got permission to completely measure the original, look at it, investigate it, came back to America and Florida and built an exact replica of that vehicle and i've had the opportunity to see it not only operate uh at a couple shows including old car festival in 2011 at greenfield village but they gave me the opportunity to not only ride on it but drive it for a short distance and people i mean it's one thing to drive the car and and get the experience of what the first self-propelled vehicle was like but I was more enthralled with the faces of the people that were getting to see this vehicle moving and operating and understand that this is where it really all began. This is the beginning of people thinking we can build a machine that can move us around and it was amazing just to see the people and and be able to tell them the story of it and why it was there. And so, you know, that educational aspect is also a big driving force in our decisions. And I think you'd agree with that, John. I can, I completely do. And, and that's why, like I said, we have a, a living museum. If you walk into our museum, 90% of what you see, our statement is can be, on the track in an hour. There's some liberties with that statement. But within a day, most everything can be wet, have all the fluids back in it, be checked out, and be operable. Because you want people to see and hear and experience the sounds. We, at a lot of events, when it comes to motorcycles, and that's the bulk of our collection is motorcycles, when's the last time you saw a supercharged one-cylinder DKW or heard it. A lot of people, a lot of children especially, have never heard or it's been decades since they heard a two-stroke motorcycle. Just little things like that. Those smells and stuff that it's fun to look at and it's that's the nice thing about museums is we want you to experience and learn and ask questions and see these things. And our museum... We were fortunate enough to have a 1964 Ferrari 158. It's the car John Surtees won his Formula One World Championship. 
He's the only driver, if you're not familiar with John Surtees, look him up. He's the only driver to have ever won world championships on two and four wheels. He won on an MV Agusta, uh, which we actually own. We have the Ferrari he did. And we built a replica of the Lola Titan. It's a, that car actually still exists and is owned by somebody else. Uh, that he won the 1966 Can-Am World Championship in. He was a fabulous driver. So when we were restoring the 158, we were looking at the parts that we had, and it was it was being restored correctly, and we we elected to go ahead and build a replica. And what the replica allowed us to do, because we, we actually still run this 1964 Ferrari 158. It's irreplaceable. It's one of the oldest Ferrari Formula One cars still in existence. The championship car, the real, the real car in our collection, is painted Ferrari red. The replica we elected to do in NART Colors, North American Racing Team, which was the Ferrari, the American Ferrari team run by Luigi Cinetti, because towards the end of the 64 season, John Surtees saw the chance that he could have a world championship. Unfortunately, as we all know, Enzo likes to get his way, and he had a falling out with the FIA, and he said, we're never racing Formula One again, and pulled his cars from Formula, the Formula One series. Surtees went to Enzo and Luigi and convinced them that he could win a world championship, so the cars were sold to Cinetti. He ra allowed them to be raced in North American Racing Team colors under the North American Racing Team banner, not the Ferrari banner. Surtees went on and won the, won the world championship. It's a story that our replica allows us to tell, and you really wouldn't know that story without really researching. I mean, we could walk in and see this red Ferrari, and you think, you know, that's the world championship car. Yes and no, it is, but it wasn't. didn't look like that when it crossed the line. The replica allows us to tell the story, and people ask questions all the time. We run the replica also. We're a little bit more liberal with our use of the replica. But we allowed, back in 2014, about the same time that the anniversary of your uh, the Jimmy Clark car, we allowed both cars to go over, and John Surtees celebrated the 50th anniversary of his world championship with those cars and toured Europe with them and was able to relive the youth, and people got to see him run. Uh, before he passed away earlier this year, he was a guest at the museum numerous times, and it was amazing to see this 70 some year old man, 80 some year old man get on a motorcycle. And he he didn't get on a motorcycle and ride a motorcycle. We get on motorcycles and ride motorcycles. Even at that age, he could get on his MV Agusta and he'd have his leathers and all that. And he just kind of became part of the motorcycle. He was as integral to that bike as the tires are, the chain is, the piston and the, the cylinder. It's just one of those things that it was an experience to see, and it, it sounds kind of corny to talk about, but when you get to see, and I would say I wasn't ever a Surtees fan until I saw that happen. A guy that is that good at his profession for that many years, and st you know, still to this day can do it, you know, I'm, I'm very lucky that I was close enough to see him become that bike, because he gets off of it, he's his normal, jovial self. 
He's on it. It's all business. And like I said, he's a part of that motorcycle. Deviates a little bit to what, you know, Derek was saying, or we were talking about on restoration reasons. But that's why these museums exist. That's why we're so adamant on making these things correct, is to tell those little bits of the story. You know, we have some replicas and we have some odd things in our museum that you go, why do we have them? Because they tell part of the story. Maybe the artifact is a little bit out of budget or it's unobtainable or it no longer exists. All of this stuff play, it plays a key point to the story that the Barber Vintage Motorsports Museum wants to tell, that the National Corvette Museum wants to tell, that the Henry Ford wants to tell, that the Elliott Museum in South Florida, that the Simeon, all of these museums have a story they want to tell. It, there's different variances on what story do they want to tell and why do they want to tell it, but they all want to tell a story, and there's very key elements, and it's the little details, and it's why I enjoy my job so much right now. I enjoy working on cars. I absolutely love the research and learning and knowing. And that's I enjoy that more than working on cars. I enjoy that more than driving the cars. I enjoy the research and learning and then being able to take a project and impart that knowledge to you. Uh, we're getting close to the end here, but one of the restorations I'm doing right now, we're returning a car, and I'm not going to go into too much of it, we're returning a car to the way it raced in 1955 at a particular event. Again, we have photographs. It's taken me five years to find photographs of this car at this event. And I have two pictures of it at the, its event, and I have one picture of it at a different race. But it's allowed us to find things that have changed on this car over the 60 or 70 years it's existed, 60 years it's existed. One of the odd things about it is, is it has a Armstrong Sidley pre-selector transmission in it, which is a fabulous piece of engineering. This transmission was invented in 1899, it allows you, and it's not it's similar to a cord, but a cord uses servos and some stuff to switch gears. This this is completely mechanical in the way this transmission operates. It's kind of a planetary transmission. It uses five different bands to lock gears into place. You start off in first gear, you operate the gear change pedal as a clutch. And then after that point, the clutch that clutch gear change pedal becomes a gear change pedal. So you're, you're moving along in first gear, you choose second, but the car doesn't shift. When you're ready for second, you push that pedal in and you lift back up. It's in the same place your clutch pedal is, but you push it in, pull it up, and the car shifts to second. But you're able to pre-select that in advance. Then when you're ready for, you know, once you make that second gear shift, you, you go to third. And then same thing. After you're in third, do you need fourth or will you need second? What gear do you need for the next point of the event or the drive, etc. And it allows you to have this nice, quick gear change. The reason this transmission existed is it's before synchronizers, which is in every manual gearbox now, and everybody thinks they can drive a manual, and it's great. Back before synchronizers, there was the double clutching. Shifts were slow. It was easy to miss shifts. So until the 50s, this was a very popular transmission especially in race cars. Bugattis ran it. I think it was in some Alfa Romeos. There were various cars that all ran these 
pre-selector transmission. The funny thing is, is once synchronizers became available, these transmissions were replaced by traditional gearboxes. Those traditional 5 and 6 and, and the new Corvette 7-speed manual transmissions, I believe the new 911 is a 7-speed manual if you want it that way, all happy and we all want them. And then all of a sudden, you, you look at this pre-selector in this 1955 Lotus, and you go, you know what? All it is is, again, old technology being reinvented because the Porsche PDK transmission, all these paddle shifters, flappy paddles, whatever you want to call them, they're all pre-selector transmissions. If you're driving a new, new 911 Turbo with its PDK and you pull the lever and it shifts from second to third, there's two gearboxes in that car. As that one gearbox grabs third, the other gearbox is pre-selecting fourth for you. So when you're ready to pull that lever, you pull that, it shifts, it transfers power to the other gearbox and fourth's engaged. And the other gearbox is ready for fifth. And it's exactly what we were doing in 1955 with very few parts and no computers and you know, it's, it's a fragile system, but we're able to tell that story, and it's one of the really important things for me to have put back in this car. It is not—we could have put a four-speed manual. Nobody would have ever known the difference. There, From my research, there's only three Lotus that have ever been made with this pre-selector transmission. It's all with the same engine-gearbox combination. It's very important to— put that together to be able to tell that story and to say that, hey, you know, this car from 1955 is basically running the same transmission that your 911 Turbo is that you can go buy at the dealership today. It's just we've learned to do it better in the 60 years since this transmission was invented and really, or since that transmission was used, in the 117 years since that transmission was actually invented. The idea has been there for 120 years. We just needed to get some computers and some things to make it better. And that's... Yeah, and that's... One of, one of the things I always like to say is, you know, everything old is new again. In other words, all most every new technology we have is based in some form of old technology. You know, hybrid... We've talked about it before. Hybrid vehicles, they've been around forever. A lot of this stuff, like you say, has been around forever and it's just finding new ways to make it work in cars and and do the things we want it to do now versus what it was doing back then and i wanted to touch on on a couple other things i know we're we're coming close to the end here as john said but one of the other big factors in decisions that we often make in the museum world and a decision we recently made at the the corvette museum in repairing restoring an, an artifact one of our vehicles of course was one of the sinkhole cars of course everyone knows the national corvette museum had a, a sinkhole occur and eight of the cars fell into the sinkhole and only three of those cars are actually really restorable and two of those were done by gm uh, the the blue devil and the one millionth uh, the Blue Devil, of course, still owned by GM. The one millionth uh, is belongs to the National Corvette Museum. But we also had a 1962 tuxedo black Corvette that, that went into the hole and didn't suffer a lot of damage, uh, mainly cracked the body, you know, a lot of the fiberglass body. And uh, 
really didn't do any damage, uh, major damage, chassis, uh, engine and transmission, all that driveline is just fine, still runs and drives. One of the big factors in the restoration on that was actually the donor's wishes for that car. And the donor had passed away a few years before the sinkhole actually happened. So granted, he never knew that the car fell into a hole and, and got damaged. In looking at the the donation paperwork and you know just knowing what the donor's story was, he bought he had bought the car brand new and basically kept it his whole life. Did what he wanted to do to it, so he modified some things here and there, mostly mechanical tweaking to make the engine a little faster and a little you know better performance with it, and just little things like that. And of course, over the time, he had things you know, maybe some paint touched up and maybe this, you know, rear quarter needed to be painted, you know, things like he just, he kept the car up as a, a good presentable driver and granted, okay, the car fell into a hole, had a lot of body damage to it. We could have taken the body off the frame. We could have stripped the engine out. We could have tore every single thing down and completely restored that car frame off you know, hundred point show car, whatever you want. We could have done that. But the reason the donor donated that car was so could people, the visitors of the National Corvette Museum could see the love he had for that car, the passion he had for that car, that he had kept it up. And he had basically loved that car since it was brand new and made sure it was his driver car until he donated it to the museum. There would be no justice in us returning that car to anything other than what he donated it as. So the goal of the restoration of that vehicle is actually to return it as we, John and I have mentioned in almost every single one of these conversations or the examples we've talked about, returning it to a moment in time. And the goal for the National Corvette Museum is to restore that car literally to one second before it fell into the sinkhole because that is the way the donor wanted the car to look and although we won't be able to exactly match the look of the paint in the way that it had blend blended in over time in certain areas and things like that the only thing we are doing to that car is repairing the body damage and repainting it the interior is staying exactly the same. The engine is staying as it was. The chassis is exactly the way it was before it fell into the hole. Everything is staying exactly the same. We are only repairing what was damaged in the hole, falling into the hole, and repainting it and putting it back to, like I say, as close as we can to that millisecond before it fell into the sinkhole. And so... You know, that's another thing we look at is oftentimes the donor's wishes of the story of the and, and it goes back again to the story of the car, but also what the donor really wanted that car to do for the visitors. Uh, so that's that's a big part of some of the decisions as well. And the one other thing I wanted to touch on real quick here before we end, you know, John, you mentioned living collection, the cars all run and drive. Uh, yeah, we we try to do that in most collections, keep the cars, you know, like I say, operable or just short of operable where everything works. And, you know, we can run them when and if we want to. 
one of the big things term terms you'll hear a lot of us use in the automotive museum field and and really any of the the mechanical museum fields where we have machines is you know we we try to adhere to what we call responsible utilization and that means that when any of us that are responsible for these artifacts you know, when we do operate them we are making decisions based on the most responsible use of these objects so that we don't damage them in any way. In other words, we don't take the 1965 Lotus Type 38 that Jim Clark won the Indy 500 in out on a racetrack and take it up to absolute top end and flog the machine and risk breaking it. Yeah, when it goes out, it does parade laps. You know, anytime we take one of these vehicles out, we use it very cautiously and we try our best to not have anything happen that could damage the vehicle. Those are the two quick things I wanted to hit on, John. And I think that's a good place to, to leave it. I did, I am going to step back since and recap a little bit on the, the sinkhole Corvettes. Those I know are probably the most challenging decisions I've ever seen when when it comes to automotive restoration, just because of what the cars were, where they were, was at the Corvette Museum shortly before the sinkhole. And to be honest, I hadn't returned until visiting Derek over the summer and seeing the cars. And I know Derek was involved with the discussions on what to do with the cars before he was ever an employee at the Corvette Museum. He it was, you know, asked and he, he helped consult on what to do with the cars, what to do with the sinkhole, how they should be presented. And doesn't matter if Derek's my friend or not, doesn't matter what I think, I'm just a small fish in this huge pond of the museum world. I think what the Corvette Museum did with that extremely challenging position they had in the light of every car collector in the world watching with the most, and excuse me, Corvette people, the most anal car collectors in the world (laughs) watching, they could not have served those cars better than the way they were presented. Unfortunately, like, you know, Derek said, some of the cars can't be restored. That is a portion of their life, and that's going to be presented that way for the remainder of those cars' lives. They're not the gorgeous sculptures they were before, but they've almost probably, in my mind, become more important to some of the Corvette legacy than some of the the perfectly restored or perfectly the perfect survivor cars there. They tell a story, and the museum's honoring them by allowing them to be displayed how they've lived their lives. Unfortunately, they had this tragedy occur in their lives, but it tells a story, and it's the history of the Corvette. And I would be hard-pressed, I would really have to look to find another museum that had that unusual of a challenge. You know, museums have had fires, museums have collapsed, museums have had car accidents. You know, things have gotten damaged over the years, but nothing has ever really happened in such an extravagant, public way, all on camera, and so focused on about with the car world. And I want to, you know, commend the National Corvette Museum for how those cars are 
are displayed if you're not a Corvette person. Even swing by, and if that's the only thing in the exhibit you look at are those cars in the, the rotunda, I believe they call it. Sky Dome. Sky Dome? Okay. Yes, Sky Dome. It's, it's worth seeing. Um, it's, it's just an interesting way. It, it, it moves you in, in, in a way of there, there are other museums that can move you in that way when you're seeing, you know, a tragedy of war or a tragedy of space exploration and things like that. These tell a story, and it's five minutes of rambling about this one exhibit. Like I said, it, it's it's really something, and it's a challenge that I'm glad I haven't had to face in my museum or even restoration career. I think with that, we'll go ahead and close up for this episode. But I do have to announce a name uh, for the Amazon gift cards. We're still posting some of the links on Amazon from our Christmas wish list last week. If you got the episode and it ended at about 34 minutes, something happened with the upload and only a 34 minutes of the hour-long episode was there. We have re-uploaded it. You can download it and get the rest of the story from that episode. But uh, the winner we have, it's uh, Nick Wiegland. Uh, Run CNC TV is his kind of, I think, Instagram handle. Um, I believe he does some CNC work in that, but he liked one of the posts on Instagram, and he, he's the winner this week of our $10 gift card. We'll reach out to him and present that. You seem to be looking at Amazon through our links. Uh, we appreciate that. Like I said, it helps to keep the podcast going, uh, helps cover some of those uh, fees we have to have to pay. We don't mind paying them out of pocket. We we like sitting around chatting <laughs> with amongst us three all, every week anyway. So we're going to go ahead and close on that. Uh, guess hopefully all three of us will be back to join you next week. We'll see how Will's uh, pro- project deadline uh, worked, works out for him. So I'll talk to you next week, Derek. All right. Have a good one, John, and congratulations to our winner.